He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, January 28, 2023. This is a special episode 133. John Fielder, world-renowned photographer. He's so much more than that. He's a conservationist. He is entertaining. He's a bookseller extraordinaire. He's a Colorado guy. Didn't start out in Colorado, came from the East Coast. Listen to this interview. Find out more about Colorado's most famous photographer who just made a huge donation of his work to History Colorado for the benefit of all of us. We need great people like John Fielder. I give you the gift of his interview on a tough week. America gets further involved in the war in Europe specifically Ukraine. Is this World War III? Seems dire. Terrorist attack in Jerusalem, what's going on there? But more importantly, what just happened to Tyree Nichols? Killed by Memphis cops? I watched the video. It's outrageous. I carried a badge for 16 years as a prosecutor. This week, I happened to be in Denver Police Headquarters for a big meeting with the chief of police, Ron Thomas, director of safety, Saldate, Armando Saldate. These guys have a big job, made more difficult by police acting that way in Memphis. What is that? That's authoritarianism right there. No trial for you, Tyree. Street justice. And then it was murder. My God, what has this country come to? Now Donald Trump cannot be put down by the Republicans. What will happen in 2024 with Trump again on Twitter, Facebook? I talk about all this with our troubadour Dave Gunders at the end of this show. He contributes a beautiful song, Light of the Morning. And not to give away too many photographic secrets, but John Fielder will tell you light of the morning is really half the battle. You have to get up really early in the morning to beat John Fielder or this interview on this podcast. Please enjoy, after this message from Michael Bailey, I give you the renowned photographer, author, and entrepreneur, John Fielder. Enjoy It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way 
way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig. 303-734-7156. 303-734-7156. I am Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Oh my goodness, what a privilege to have in my studio, in my uncomfortable chair that makes everybody sit up and pay attention, John Fielder, Colorado's preeminent landscape photographer, maybe in all of America, but I think he really cares about Colorado. That is his adopted state. It's really selling John Short to just call him a photographer. He's an artist. He's an adventurer. He's a producer, a professor, a choreographer, an accomplished author, over 50 different books, an environmentalist, a conservationist, and dare I say, you are a persuader too. Am I right? You know, I hate being called all those names. I know, but the persuader part, that's kind of my field, being a lawyer. Have you ever thought you could have been a great lawyer if you had the patience to do that sort of thing? You know, I think I made six on my LSATs. Is that good? Is that Well, I think it's good? like SATs. Did I think you you're supposed to it? get like 800. Yeah, I did. Set for LSATs, and I didn't do very well. That's why I think you're a great persuader. Well, do you know why? Because I have your book on ranches. I've studied your history. You've talked the government into letting you roam Rocky Mountain National Park. You talked countless ranchers into letting you invade their property, do whatever. That's a lot of persuasion. Am I right? Life's not worth living without making trouble. And I started making trouble in third grade was when I started getting put into the corner. I bet you did. Let's go way back, because everybody knows that you just gave your incredible work to History Colorado. We will not bury the lead. It's on all the local stations. The Denver Post covered it extensively. I'm here to let you know the Colorado Sun, where I'm a columnist. They want you, you too. They love you. I'm on the Sun's philanthropy list. I give them money. I read them every day. They send me all your columns, and uh, that's where I get good journalism. I'm going to write a column about you. Um, please do. I, I like selling books. I love money. I need, oh, my God. I need, I need How much publicity. More? Holy cow. I went to Barnes & Noble, and actually half the store was John Fielder's. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable how many volumes you have still flying off the shelves. I guess I overprinted. 
And then you have your unbelievable photography business where people order online. You used to have all these storefronts, but who needs that anymore? Exactly. It's all done by email, by phone call. So if you want, we're going to decorate your house since we're good friends now. Right. So you send me a phone photo of your blank wall and I Photoshop in the exact image that you see on my website and I'll put a frame around it or whatever. And the mock-up is 98% of the finished product. So I don't need a gallery any longer. We just do it by remote control. And you can give me wallpaper. Am I right? Do you know what I just did? I just came from Ink Monster, which mostly does all those colored decals on vehicles, trucks and cars. You know, they'll do the whole thing and they can shape it. But they do these wall murals too. And uh, some company, the contractor just had me, just commissioned me to do 40 feet long by 12 feet high. And they picked a photo of the Indian Peaks Wilderness in Boulder, one of my favorites. And I was just at Ink Monster, who'll do the printing and the installation, approving a test that's about two feet long for color and contrast. So yeah, I do that in institutions. You are an industry. Well, it's you not are. my it's not my fault. I mean, I money's nice. There's better things, but I'm a merchant, and we're going to talk about that. Yes. I know. Yes, and we, merchandising's in my blood. Let's talk about your blood. Your bio says you were born in D.C., but then, what, you moved to North Carolina? Yeah, after World War II, Mom and Dad got married in D.C. We were there for one year. Then he ran, he was the youngest president of a department store on Fifth Avenue in New York City in 1952. It was called Deepina. And uh, remember Lassie, the TV show? Yes. We, You and I grew up with that. John Provost was the actor who played Timmy. And I have still have Timmy's autograph because he came to my dad's store, Depina, and my dad got an autograph for me when I was like six years old, 1950. Gosh, I don't six. associate you with New York City. And then we moved. Dad got hired to run a one-store department store called Ivy's in downtown Charlotte, but they wanted to turn it into a chain. So my dad took it from one store to 34 stores in his career. So we moved to Charlotte to do that. So I became a redneck in 1960. How old were you then? 10. You are slightly older than me, although I did watch some Lassie, but maybe not as much as you. Okay, so I'm going to treat you with respect as my elder and more accomplished individual, but you grew up watching Lassie. What else did you do? Twilight Zone, Friday night, 10 o'clock in Connecticut. So we moved to Greenwich and my mother and father wouldn't let me stay up until... 10 o'clock to watch the original Twilight Zone with Rod Serling. But if I had a sleepover at a kid's house, you know, their parents were more liberal. That's where I got to watch the Twilight Zone. And then my dad took me to New York Yankees baseball games with Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris and Moose Scourin and all those guys at Yankee Stadium. So those were the highlights. Actually, the highlight of Connecticut and New York was riding my bike at age 8, 9, 10 on all those curvy roads outside Greenwich in the bucolic countryside of Connecticut before all the corporations moved out of New York Mm -hmm. City to trash that place. And I still remember to this day the feeling of infiniteness and the curiosity of what's around the next corner. And that stuck with me for the rest of my life because what have I been doing in Colorado for 50 years? What's around the next corner of the trail? 
And what is the Colorado connection to the New York Yankees of your youth? So my dad's brother, Fred, Uncle Fred, became the CEO of Colorado Fuel and Iron, CF&I Steel Corporation uh-huh. in Pueblo, Colorado, that built the West with nails, pipe, barbed wire, and, you know, steel. And Uncle Fred was there from 68 to 73. And his son, Buzzy, Fred Fielder, the attorney, he was, you know, deputy DA under McKevitt with Jarvis Seckham and uh, Mitzner. Do you remember those guys? No, at all? just ahead so of my this time. Was, this was the 60s. That was the Denver DA's office, and Buzzy Fred was part of that group I've heard of, about that of group. attorneys. Gary Jackson, Marshall Fogel, they've been Fogel was this. right after that. Yeah, exactly. It was a great group of guys. They had a great time, you know, putting people away. And so Uncle Fred and then Buzz came out. He was a Duke graduate, too. And so they invited me to come to Colorado. And Uncle Fred hired me to work for CF&I Steel in two of my four college summers when I was at Duke in North Carolina, prospecting for gold, silver, copper, molybdenum all over the West and Colorado. So that's that's when I really came out and spent a lot of time. Nice. Nice. Visiting your uncle, you got to look at the front range and you said, oh my God, it's an image that stuck with you. I can't tell you how many people I've interviewed. I'm from here, so I take it for granted. But Federico Pena describes it on down the road. But for you... It's everything. Well, it happened before that. 19, listen to this. 1963, 13-year-old middle school kid is in a station wagon. You know what that is, right? Kind of like a minivan. Was it a Woody? Uh, No. She couldn't afford it. But my middle school science teacher at Charlotte Country Day School in Charlotte, North Carolina, Mrs. Dolly Hickman, went beyond the call of duty for 20 years. She took seven kids in a station wagon towing a pop-up camper to visit archaeological, biological, geological, paleontological places around the West, around Mexico, around British Columbia and and Canada. And she would, for five weeks, seven kids plus her daughter, a geologist, and Mrs. Hickman in the front seat, the three kids in each of the next two back seats, and then the seventh kid in the way back where the luggage storage is with a pop-up camper, digging for fossils, cracking open geodes, digging for archaeological treasures all around the West and Mexico and Canada. So I got to do two of her 20 summers of doing this. In the summer of 64, we went straight across the middle of the U.S., camped in Rocky Mountain National Park three days later, Wow, 1964. I saw Long's Peak, and I looked at Mrs. Hickman, and I said, Mrs. Hickman, I'm going to live here someday. Oh, my gosh. And it happened. What a teacher. And then, after I'd done five or six books— I contacted her like I hadn't seen her for 20 years after high school. And I said, you're the reason why I'm a nature photographer today, because I did department store and all that, and then turned my passion into a career. And then for every year, for 30 years until she died at age 96, I would go home to see family and friends. Then I'd take Mrs. Hickman out for lunch, or we'd drive up to the Appalachian Mountains and look at wildflowers. And so every year after that, I thanked her in person for making me the person that I am today. That's amazing. I'm thinking about all the legal liability issues. One page letter, yes. 1963 and four, saying our son, John, has permission to go 7,000 miles in a station wagon with you, Mrs. Hickman. You know, things weren't litigious in those days. Well, that's fantastic. It's a love affair that has lasted. And am I right that really 
you care about Colorado. It's like my podcast. It goes out all over the world, and I've been on international cases like Jean Benet, Kobe Bryant, but I really care about Colorado. It's where I'm from. What do I care what the people in New Hampshire think about me? It's all about Colorado for me. What about you? You know, I wanted to make my living out of one place because I didn't want to be a vagabond like a National Geographic mm. photographer is gone 11 months a year. Can you raise a family under those circumstances? No, I wanted to be a family man. And so I said, can I do one place? And I proved you could with good marketing, good photos, that you could sell enough books and calendars and prints and teach workshops to make a living out of one place. But, but it's got to be but a special place. Said, with that said, yeah, over the years, I traveled the world and the West and right. photographed lots of places. And every time that I would go to a beautiful place, whether New Zealand or whether Tahiti or whether the Absorca Beartooth Wilderness in Montana, I would come back home to my family in Colorado and I'd say, you know, that was really incredible, but I still think I like Colorado better. It was love at first sight and at first sound. Wasn't it something about the word Colorado that appealed to you? Absolutely. Um, I'm a color guy. When I was in the department store business, I was good at developing good displays and setting up a wall of towels or a wall of Izod alligator shirts with 80 different colors so that the human eye, all those ladies would be attracted to that wall and they'd buy more mm. Than less. So color has always been a huge part of my life. And to think that there was a place called Color Auto, absolutely. So now I'm starting to get some connections. Your father was a famous guy in the department store business. He built a, a great living and a company. Am I right? Continue this story. Not only that, remember University Hills? Of course. I, I grew up shopping at the J.C. Penney for my back-to-school wear. I okay. remember the basement where we would go for the deals. So remember, those shopping centers only had one anchor store. J.C. Penney, May DNF, Denver yes. Dry Goods, whatever. Only one. Because the theory was, if you were a big store, you didn't want any competition because you wanted all the business if, right. as a department store. And then guess what happened? South Glen Mall. I was the general manager of the May DNF there from 19... 79 to 1981, we got smart and we figured out that if there were five anchors, so many more people, economies of scale too with cost, would come and buy that everybody would do more business than if they were by themselves. Oh my so God. my dad yes. built one of the first multi-anchor malls in the world in White Plains, New York in the 60s. And yeah, he was a pioneer in that After industry. South Glen Mall or before it? South Glen was not until, let's see, 76 is when they built South Do you South remember Glen. who built South Glen Mall? Yeah, Perlmutter. Yes. Jordan. Jordan Perlmutter. My dad was his attorney and good friend for 45 years. I was at the grand opening of South Glen Mall. And Ed turned out to be a great guy. Eddie Perlmutter, a cousin. Yes. Saw him the other day. Yes. What a great guy. Good family. What a great family. And, good and they innovated that idea. They built North Glen Mall before that. And we had Cinderella City. That's before you got here, but your dad was doing much the same thing on the East Coast. Exactly. Sin City was one of the first in the whole world. And my dad was simultaneously doing the same thing on the East Coast. That's fascinating. What a small world. So you can see where the selling books and calendars part comes from. And you're going to be a department store 
big wig yourself, following the family tradition, what happened? Well, I was. I was the youngest senior manager in the company. I was running a store that was doing $15 million a year, had 120 employees. The South Glen made DNF. That building is still there today. It's a Macy's today. At age 29, at age 31, after eight years of backpacking on my day off, you know, I would get one day off a week if I was lucky in that business. That's a work hard business. Yeah, do you uh, sell that much? Holy cow, I remember how busy it used to get in there. And I was four-wheel driving up Engineer Pass and Cinnamon Pass in the San Juan Mountains because I didn't have time to backpack in the middle of wilderness and learning my craft, learning by looking at Ansel Adams and Elliot Porter and other photographers, how they made beautiful photos, and by trial and error teaching myself how to make a good photo, but no time, no money to go to a workshop or go to a class or have somebody teach me. And then in 1981, after two years managing, so I was a good buyer. I bought menswear, ladies sportswear, and the best job I ever had in my life, better than nature photography. Do you know what that was? What was that? Buyer of ladies swimwear. But that's all I can say, because these days you get in trouble. No, you can't. Honestly, you can cuss, you can say anything. Anyway, they would send me to New York, Los Angeles, and Palm Springs to these swimwear shows, and me, the 27-year-old bachelor, I'd have to sit in these showrooms six hours a day, five hours a week as out-of-work actresses and swimsuit models would parade in front of me, and that's when they invented the string bikini, and then I would buy, you know, the appropriate Janssen white or... um, Gotex from Israel, expensive swimwear manufacturer, swimsuits for the store. Even though my main job was lady sportswear, you know, tops and bottoms, the swimwear job they gave to me because it was too small. So anyway, that was the best job I ever you had. You must really love photography to give that up. Age 31 with a wife, a child, and another one on the way, I knew that I was destined because Mrs. Hickman, her head reared up out of my psyche, right? I hadn't seen her since 1964 on that 6,000-mile trip to Crater Lake and British Columbia and Banff and Jasper. And and uh, all of a sudden, Mrs. Hickman sprouted out of my subconscious, and I realized I was destined to be outdoors. And I was a pretty good artist. I mean, I couldn't paint that well, but I was getting better with the camera. So I said, what if you put the camera together with being outdoors? Could I make a living? So 1981, I quit the May DNF job, cold turkey, and the rest, as they say, is history. That was 42 years ago I started making my living. That was sort of tough times. I was just getting out of law school then. Ronald Reagan was elected instead of Jimmy Carter because we had a malaise, as I recall. What was that conversation like when you went home to your wife and said, honey, I'm giving up the great job and I'm going to be a nature photographer? My late wife, Gigi, was the most beautiful woman I ever saw in my life. I'll never forget seeing her the first time. She worked at May DNF also when I was an assistant buyer in 1975. She was an assistant buyer in the dress department. I was in the ladies' sportswear department, and she was in the cubicle next to mine. And I remember on like day two, looking around the wall of the cubicle, and here was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life. And immediately I... My objective became, how do I get this person forever? But she was uh, 
living with a guy on in Washington Park who made a lot of money selling used airliners, jet airliners, and had a place in Winter Park so they would ski together, and I didn't know how to ski. So I went to Winter Park, and I did the bunny run two Saturdays in a row, and then I called her up, and I said, you know, let's go ski. And she said, I didn't know you were a skier. And I said, yeah, I'm a skier. So what kind of skier are you? So I'm pretty good. And uh, so we go up to Winter Park on the sly because she's got the boyfriend. And she takes me to the top of Mary Jane, which had just opened up. With muscles? This is like 70. Oh. Yeah, there's two runs, called one called Outhouse and one called Drunken Frenchman, which are double black diamonds, as oh, they no. call them today. And she said, well, how about we get to the top of Outhouse? And she says, well, how about this one? said, piece of cake. 45 minutes later, I'm down at the bottom and I'm feeling pretty bad. And she looks at me, she knows what's going on, says, how is that? And I said, piece of cake. So she takes me back up to the top of Drunken Frenchman, which is tougher than Outhouse. By the time I got down to the bottom of Drunken Frenchman, I had what was called Lang Bang. So back in the day, you'd get boot top fracture on the top of your Lang boots if you fell down and because of the leverage. And right. I had, I had a fracture in my leg. And she said, well, how was that? And I said, I give up. I'm not really a skier, not yet, at least. But she was impressed with my prowess. And so we dated for five years. did she go years. to the hospital with you? Did you have no, to get No, she a didn't care enough about me at that point. I hadn't roped her yet. Talk about falling for a girl. Anyway. So we married in 1979 in the little town of Westcliff, Colorado, and raised three kids. And then, um, unfortunately, when she was 52, she developed early Alzheimer's. We took care of her in our home in Greenwood Village for seven years, and then she passed away at age 59 from the effects of that disease that most people don't realize affects 10% of all Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's victims when they're in their 40s and 50s and 60s, and she was a victim of that. Oh my God, I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank I've you. had as a recent guest Jordan Hedberg, who writes the wet he, he runs the Wet Mountain Tribune in Westcliff, Colorado, and he grew up there. Well, my Westcliff connection was, so yeah, I worked for Uncle Fred for CF&I Steel Corporation yes. in college, but guess what I did my junior year in high school? I worked on the Naja 400-acre ranch in the Wet Mountain Valley, mm -hmm. Westcliff, Colorado, owned by a guy named Chet Haga. He had two kids that I worked with, and I was a ranch hand for three months the summer of 1967 under the gaze of Crestone Peak, Crestone Needle, and the great Sangre de Cristos that later became my subject matter for my books. I had never been there. Jordan Hedberg was talking to me remotely, and he said, it's like Colorado's Tetons, Craig. I can't believe you haven't been there. I took these two dogs who are laying down in front of you, and I said, can I let them out? They were in heaven. They were on a ranch. You're used to it, but these dogs aren't. Ico got in the chicken coop, and next thing I know, I heard squawking, and Jordan's running, and anyway, they had a good chicken dinner, and this little docile labradoodle, she's a chicken killer. Uh, you know, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> anyway, that's my Westcliff experience, because I get turned on by the Well, mountains. let's not talk about that, because that's one of the great last places on earth, is the Wet Mountain Valley. They've, you know, the growth, they've protected the ranches with conservation easements so there can't be a whole lot of subdivisions down there but imagine that you know Crestone Peak Crestone Needle Kit Carson the 14ers I mean people go to climb there but what else do you do down there you just hang out it's the most beautiful place on earth it is incredible although the Tetons are pretty spectacular too, too many people too many people all right now I got to 
not make this a complete softball interview because some people criticize you. You have painted the most beautiful landscapes of Colorado, and millions of people have seen it, and they say, I want to go there. I want to see this for myself, so aren't you the guy responsible for Colorado getting so darn crowded? Absolutely, and I'm proud of it. You want to know why? Please. So, tourism and recreation now a $64 billion a year industry between skiing and hunting and fishing Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. And that provides us an alternative, Craig, to other kinds of making money like uh, digging for coal and oil and gas and all these things that today we know clearly are impacting our quality of life and making things pretty tough for us and will make things even tougher for us to even exist, right, in the future. So how nice to have an option of where you just invite people to your home and they get to go backpacking or they can just drive Trail Ridge Road, whatever it is. The problem is we don't manage it. We don't give our Forest Service or BLM or Park Service enough money to manage the traffic. Case in point, um, I did books about California and Washington State back in the 80s. And when I was in California, I was in the Sierra Nevadas, the John Muir Wilderness. And there was a permit system, and there still is today, mm-hmm. where they limited the number of people that could go up any one drainage right. to the high lakes to manage traffic so that the ecosystem was not compromised with toilet paper and feces. And they had forest rangers who would be on patrol. Like I didn't, I got a permit because you got to get a permit and that's a Tyvek tag you hook to your pack. And I didn't realize you're supposed to hook that to your backpack. So I go 15 miles up the trail and I get stopped by a ranger in the wilderness. And he says, where's your, where's your permit? And I says, well, it's in the car on the dashboard. Go get it. So back 12 oh. miles, back up another 12 miles, and then another eight miles to where I was going to camp, you know, on night number two. So they control the amount of people going there. We're only starting to think about that. The Four Loop Pass in the Maroon Bells Snowmass Wilderness, Chicago Basin, they haven't even started it there. But Hanging Lake, you can see what they're doing now at Hanging Lake. They're limiting the number of people that go into a, a given place. So that's what you do. But here's the most important thing. It's one thing to look at a field or photograph on a wall or in a book or a calendar. It's another to be outdoors yourself in person, not only seeing it, but smelling the wildflowers, feeling that white, dusty stuff, that powder on the bark of an aspen tree, tasting freshly melted snowmelt water, listening to it gurgle. The sensuous of nature is not just views. It's sound, smells, taste. And touch, and unless you do that, you don't become enamored. You don't become a lover of a place that's willing to write a letter to um, the forest supervisor, Scott Fitzwilliams, who runs the White River National Forest, who makes these decisions whether to have a permit system or not. You don't write a letter to your local congressional representative or senator. You don't call up the newspaper and ask if you can write a 600-word editorial in the Denver post unless you're impassioned because you've been to that place. Looking at my books is nothing. It sucks. you got to get outdoors. If we don't get people outdoors, none of this stuff gets protected, and it gets protected by laws, and laws get made made by elected officials. Don't put down your books, okay, because I own several of them, and I think they're wonderful. But what you are saying about getting out there yourself, it's been backed up in some recent physiological studies about awe. It's important for the human psyche to experience awe. I think, 
I know, but have you seen those recent studies? Are you just well? I haven't, but I, you know, logically, yes, breathing fresh air, being alone, and having thoughts to yourself at eight thirty in the morning after twilight and sunrise and photography and a good breakfast of um, instant oatmeal, and then you're sitting there at twelve and a half thousand feet, looking over those alpine lakes and. Yeah, having your thoughts to yourself. I think people know that there's a special medicine out there. I think that sounds wonderful, but I'm a night owl. And the song of this week by our troubadour, Dave Gunders, who's climbed a bunch of 14ers. He's an outdoorsman. He's, he, he's got a place up in Grand County. His father was in the 10th Mountain Division, Camp Hale, right near where you live, if I've got that correct. And his song of the week is called Light of the Morning. And that's what distinguishes your incredible photography, your use of light. And that seems to revolve around sunrise, sunset. Am I right? If you want to be a great photographer, sunrise is where it's at. You're half right. Two things separate the men from the boys, the women from the girls in photography. Number one is composition and design. We humans with two eyes, we perceive depth and distance. So when you're standing on top of Ypsilon Peak at 13,700 feet in Rocky Mountain National Park, looking down at the Spectacle Lakes 2,000 feet below, below you, you get a tingle in your toes because of depth perception. But photography, painting, like your incredible uncle, thank you for sharing those paintings with me. It's a two-dimensional process. So we lose one thing, depth. How do you design a photograph for a painting so that you can draw the viewer's eye from foreground to middle ground to background? How do you create an asymmetrical design so that the eye moves from one place to another, as opposed to, say, let's have in the horizon, you know, in the middle, which is boring, and it makes your eye fight between sky and landscape. So number one, design. Number two, light. Understanding the qualities of light, the intensity of light, the color of light, all those colors in the spectrum, even the ones that we don't even see. So yeah, my my living literally has been made from twilight, where you get the glow of warm colors with stars in the sky and a reflection on the mountain snow, starting at uh, 4.45 a.m. and ending about 5.15 during the long days of summer. And then that first orange red light hits the peaks, and then it turns to yellow, and then it turns to white. And that whole process is basically 4.45 a.m. to 9 a.m., and then I'm done. The sun's too high. The colors get washed out. The contrast gets too great. So my living has been made literally from 4.45 a.m. to 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. to 9.45 p.m. Have you always been a morning person? I hate getting up early, but I can't think of one single morning in 50 years photograph and when I didn't get up except in the San Juan Mountains during monsoon when you get seven days of nonstop rain it happens sometimes where you stick your head out the tent at 5 a.m and it's pouring and you stick your head out at 5 30 and it's pouring but I was up because I'm checking to make sure I you know can photograph that's interesting when I had a great passion for golf I could get up really early to play with a good group of guys. So if you have a passion for something, you will get up early to do it. 1993, Castle Pines Village Realty hired me to photograph um, Castle Pines International Course and the course just north of there, the next one, 
right. on, on the escarpment. And uh, yeah, I mean, I play a little bit of golf too. But for that project, for one year, I would drive down there in my Audi 200 Quattro at like 5 a.m. And I would be out, I'd grab a golf cart and be out on the golf course, you know, at 515, right. photographing that first light coming up behind me of that escarpment, you know, where, um, you know, where you look down on the East Plum Creek. You know, right, I'm trying to think of that Gasset golf course uh, well, and the other one with the, that's on that maze. Well, and Linegar, Dave Linegar, you know, Remax yes, has his the private, sanctuary. Yeah, has the sanctuary all there. on that ridge. Yes. And uh, and then sometimes I'd get out there and they didn't have a golf cart, you know, ready for me. Right. So I'd drive the Audi on the golf cart pass. I actually did on that other course, the Castle Pines Country Club course, not the international course where mm-hmm. they played the tournament. The 18th hole is a bunch of sharp 180-degree switchbacks right. going to the top to the clubhouse. And I actually did the Audi. I had to back up and pull forward like six times on each switchback on the concrete cart path. So there's a, the point is there's a story for everything. After being out here for 50 years, there's a story for everything. Great. All right. I think you are at Duke. Did you graduate from Duke? Is that right? Pretty darn good school. 1972, accounting and management sciences. Do you love Duke? Do you follow their sports? or you left Yeah, it but one and, one and done has ruined it. Oh, yeah, for basketball. No doubt about but it. But no, I'm a, still a – we didn't call ourselves Dukies back then. We were Blue Devils. And um, then they invented this term called Dukie. But, yeah, no, we, you're once a Dukie, always a Dukie. Well, I don't know. I'm a Colorado guy. And Where did you go to college? Did you go Colorado to college? Colorado College. I really essentially lived in Denver, Colorado Springs, and Boulder for law school. And I'd ask you, since you are the preeminent landscape expert in Colorado, which is the most beautiful front range city between those three? Boulder, Denver, or Colorado Springs? You know, there's no way I can win. I, I piss off everybody else if I pick one of those. But I would say this, that Boulder for Boulder Creek and Nederland and the Indian Peaks Wilderness and Caribou above that, you know, not so much. The Flatirons are great, but I'm, right. an, I'm an alpine mm-hmm. guy. Give me uh, mountain water and tundra and wildflowers and yellow aspen trees. So you got to go west of Boulder. So right. Boulder is very special yes. for that. You know, I still have indelible in my head raising my family on the Highline Canal in Greenwood Village, not too far That's from where we're sitting. That's the most important body of right water here. in my life is the Highline Canal. I've always lived within a, a walking distance of the Highline. So we would take the family when Gigi had Alzheimer's and she could barely walk and understand and talk. We would still walk along the Highline Canal down to DeCoven Park, you know, at mm-hmm, Arapahoe sure. University. But the best thing about that house was the unobstructed view of Mount Evans and seeing that orange light on Mount Evans every morning. So Denver, Red Rocks, Bison at Daniels Park, out where we were just talking about, absolutely lovely, all the resources there and all the parks and open space and trails. And then the third one was Colorado, Colorado Springs, Springs Colorado College, a great school. Yes. And, you know, there... I'm following in the footsteps footsteps of my hero, William Henry Jackson, who I did that repeat photography book about, you know, right. his 
photos of Garden of the Gods in 1873. I mean, how could you not be, you know, enamored with Colorado Springs with Garden of the Gods and um, driving up to um, Pikes Peak, Cripple Creek, the back, the back way on the. Isn't it kind of a different universe on the backside of Pikes Peak? I'm I don't know Appalachia. You probably do. Growing up out there. But isn't it sort of different on the backside of Pikes Peak? You know, just like I said, uh, yeah, I love the flat irons, but everybody loves the flat irons. Give me something a little different. That's exactly what the backside of Pikes Peak is. From South Park, Mm -hmm. Colorado, you know, you can see the backside of Pikes Peak. and It doesn't look anything like the front side, but you can see the road. And it's still beautiful, but there's nobody there. There's a state park forget the name of it, it'll come to me, state park back there that I love going to that gives you unobstructed views of the backside of Pikes Peak. So I was always a contrarian. That's the point of all of this. I never, believe it or not, I have never stood at Maroon Lake to photograph the famous Maroon Bells reflection shot, except in the winter when we snowmobiled up there with NBC Nightly News and Tom Brokaw interviewed me about the passage of the 1993 Tim Worth Colorado Wilderness Bill that I helped get past. So we snowmobile up to Maroon Lake. It's partially frozen. I'm with my medium format camera. We're setting it up as a prop for the interview to be on NBC Nightly News back then in front of 16 million people. And I see snow blowing off the peaks and I see uh, peaks reflecting in the partially frozen water and steam coming off the rest of the water. And this is a photo, right? And I tell the television crew, Interview suspended. I turn around, I get the shot. We finish the interview, and then that night I'm talking to Tom Brokaw about the passage of Tim's 1993. All right, when you get that shot. So point is, I don't go to places that other people go. In the very beginning, I said to myself, I don't give a shit if I don't have a photo of maroon bells in the fall with those aspen trees. I'm going to do a whole book about the whole freaking wilderness between Crested Butte and Aspen and go to places that nobody else has ever gone and a lot of people have never even seen and nobody's ever photographed it. And with Tom Barron, the children's book writer from Boulder, we did a book called To Walk in Wilderness of all 230,000 acres of the whole freaking wilderness. Forget Maroon Bells. But you haven't forgotten. You have amazing photographs of maroon bells that have sold like crazy. But your pictures of wildflowers near Crested yeah, Butte and Aspen, yeah, of Capitol Peak and all that stuff. But I, I never sold, except for that winter shot, a single photo of the most famous photo in the history of photos. Now I have to figure this out. When you say, Tom, sorry, there's a photo opportunity. I doubt you whipped out an iPhone. This is too long ago for that. But do you always have? Uh, a professional camera at the ready, wherever you are? For the most part. Uh, that's what a question, that question I've been getting lately is, you know, does the camera get in the way? Heck yes. I mean, I'm a nature lover first, right. photographer second. And you're darn right. There's sometimes when I just want to sit there and enjoy the sublimeness of the moment. I don't want to be messing with right. a large format camera and being distracted. But that's how I make my living. And I've learned how to do both, enjoy the sensuousness and take pictures at the same time. So yeah, when I do a serious trip, I tend to have a serious camera. Backup plan is a Lumix ZS100 point and shoot about you know five inches by three inches and it's 24 megapixel and I can make a four foot print with that. So sometimes I would take that if I'm just doing a road trip somewhere and I don't want to take the big camera. But by and large... I'm always with a big, important camera. But that doesn't mean 
I don't take I don't have ten thousand photos on my iPhone like everybody else. I do. And you probably take a lot of notes. How do you do that? Because you are a prolific writer and an excellent author. Your way with words is fantastic. Do you do that all yourself? Do you have somebody who assists? Thank you for the pat on the back. You know, my math SAT was 725. My English SAT was 520. That I could actually talk in an interview like this without slurring my words and having bad grammar is a miracle. But yes, I appreciate language and I, I like expressing myself partly because it's necessary that if you can combine, as did one of my heroes, Enos Mills, the father of Rocky Mountain National Park, who wrote, what, 50, 100 books, and he took photos of the park and the reason why the park became a park in 1915, in large part, is because of his advocacy and his writing and his photography. So yeah, you need to, when you can combine good words with good photos, I think the effect is more powerful and you can get more stuff done going back to where we started the interview in the first place is making things happen. I have my impression of you as somebody who has planned out his future a good bit. And when you took note of photography being a passion, you already mentioned Ansel Adams, who was world-renowned photographer, mainly in the far west, California, if I'm right, Yosemite, and he got close to Colorado, but he kind of left that for you. Did you take note of that, saying... You know, Ansel Adams has kind of got California and other parts of the West covered. I could be the Ansel Adams of Colorado. Adams is my hero mostly because of his environmentalism. You know, he was a big part of the Sierra Club in his 84 years of life. And that became a part of my transition from just photographer and backpacker to that plus environmentalist and conservationist. And Adams kind of paved the way there that he showed me how you could use photos to make things happen but and he was a black and white photographer and I as much as I love black and white you know it's not my passion I'm a color auto guy and color even though you put out tremendous black and white volumes well I did do one black and white book that I'm very proud of but 49 other books are right Color. So color stimulates me. It always did in the mm-hmm. department store business, and it did as a— Can I just push back? What about your Colorado winter? That was almost without color, as you referenced, because it was so white. That's perspicacious of you. Thank that you. Is the, you. You did better on your SAT than you're admitting. I never got past P in Webster's Third International. You did get bridge, to perspicacious. But I got to perspicacious. But you're right. There is no color— I mean, there's some color in winter, and you have to then concentrate on shapes and textures. It's a beautiful and book. More, thank you so much. And more on your design. But back to Adams. Yes. You know, I'd never felt competitive with him because he was black and white. He rejected color because there was no way to print color really effectively in his day. And he was a quality control guy. And so he did great black and white prints. And no, he didn't spend much time in Colorado. So, yeah, the door was... Wide open. There was a guy named David Munch who was doing beautiful coffee table books back in the 70s for Graphic Arts Center Publishing out of Portland. But that was really my only competition in 1982 when I started my career saying to myself, can I publish books? Can I publish calendars? Can I make prints and make a living out of one place so I don't have to be on the road, you know, nine out of every 10 days so I can be a family man at the same time I'm trying to make a living. Did Adams make a good living? Heck yeah. You know, his photos are worth, well, he's right. dead, dead now. It doesn't do him any mm-hmm. 
good, but, you know, they sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Another role model of yours, and you were able to collaborate in a book, was William Henry Jackson. I, I read up on him, fascinating individual. I've covered uh, Schuyler Colfax when he came to Colorado through the Colfax Museum, which is part of History Colorado, which you're going to dominate now. But I love that era. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, Schuyler Colfax, William Henry Jackson, was he part of all that? Jackson was. I mean, they were great photographers in the 19th century, but nobody covered the landscape, just like I covered each of 108,000 square miles in Colorado in the last 50 years. So too did Jackson cover most of this state and the West. So he was first hired by Ferdinand Hayden to be the official photographer for the Hayden Survey of the West from 1870 to 1878. So when all of those uh, engineers were climbing peaks with their theodolites, their transits, to measure the heights of peaks and to map out the West with Hayden's maps that he produced for the survey, Jackson was the official photographer. Thomas Moran was doing some painting um, for the survey at the same time. And so Jackson, five foot six, with, with a squeaky voice like this, had 365 pounds of not only large format view camera equipment with glass plate negatives for which he had to make the emulsion in the field, coat the glass, make the photo, and then develop the negative within 30 minutes of coating the emulsion on the glass. Otherwise, the image would not appear. So he had to have a light, tight, darkroom tent to do all of that. Me, the wuss, carrying 65 pounds of gear, fearing, feeling sorry for himself, climbing Long's Peak with all this shit to duplicate Jackson's photo from the top of the peak. Jackson doing 365 pounds. Heck yeah, he was my hero. And in terms of his perseverance and willing to drag a couple of mules like I drag a couple of llamas to 13,000 feet and above. What a great example he set for me. And he's in the repository at History Colorado, the benefactor of my donation of my life's work. We are side by side. It's like I knew this guy. He lived from, he was born in 1843, died in 1942 at age 99 plus six months. I never got to meet him because I was born in 50. He died in 1942, but I got to know him because I went through all 22,000 of his photos at History Colorado before the project where I stood where he stood in 300 places to duplicate his work. He's a little more than 100 years older than you, and just like Ansel Adams, even more so, he lived a long life, and he kept contributing. What did he live to be, 99? And he became, moved to New York when yes. he was 90 years old. He was part of the famous... Explorers Club. So the Explorers Club based in New York City, the membership of that were the most famous Norden Skold who helped discover and map Mesa Verde and the Ute Mountain Ute Tribal Park. I mean, all the famous explorers of the 19th century, Livingston and all those guys. I mean, they were part of the Explorers Club and Jackson was part of the Explorers Club. And he became a painter, Jackson did in his 90s and painted paintings that are now hanging in, in various um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service facilities around the West. Yeah, the guy was productive until the day he died. And very well known and respected, right? Abs absolutely. And he probably contributed to the settlement of the West in a big way. Manifest Destiny was Thomas Moran, Albert Bierstadt with their romanticized paintings, right? You know, they made things look better than they really were. 
And Jackson was part of the Romanticist period to do one thing, to take pictures, but mostly to attract white people out west to take over the land from you-know-who, which, which we're trying to fix right now. I can't help but think about a photographer born 100 years after you. Will there be photography? Can you imagine uh, if there's another book putting together your work, William Henry Jackson, now spanning 200 years? Have you ever thought about that? If Homo sapiens exist in 100 years, they will be taking pictures, they will be making images, because there is no satisfaction like the satisfaction of looking at the landscape, looking at nature, looking at a, an elk in a meadow, and making your own interpretation of that by whatever method that will be in a hundred years, and sharing it, which is the best part of all that we've talked about. The best part for me has not been the taking of the photo, the making of the photo. It's been sharing it with so many people. 1983, Brenda Wellington uh, was the secretary for district court in the Denver DA's office. She got a word processor. I said, what is this? I want to learn about this. I want to use it when you're not here. And she let me. And it was the dawn of a new era that hasn't really stopped since. With photography, the technological advances have to be remarkable since you began. I admire that you've kept up with it, it appears. Tell us about the technological advances and what it's meant for your profession. Did you say 83 for that word processor? Yes. I was two years ahead of the curve. So I had a trash 80 in 1981 when I started my I had business. to wait for the government to buy something. I had a Tandy mm -hmm. TRS-80 before there was an Apple, before there was IBM desktops. Tandy was the only personal computer, and it was called a TRS-80. It had 80K of memory. And you had eight-inch floppies, and it was called the Trash 80. And where did you buy it? At Radio Shack? Yeah, at Radio yes. Shack. And you had to talk for eight hours a night, five days a week, with your buddy in Chicago on the phone who knew how this thing worked and all the bugs and how you could but you make liked this it. thing work. You're an early adopter. To well, totally. And, and the database programming is how I would invoice Barnes & Noble for the books that they bought for me. It was absolutely critical to have a well-run business. I was with an accounting degree, so that was kind of second nature. So yeah, technology is huge. But the first 25 years was film because film was the best. And I, that was the large format 4x5 because it would make great detail when I would blow up prints. So but you then, know how to do it in a dark room? You had all that technology with the liquids? I didn't want to be in a dark room. I wanted to be out photographing. Right. So I had a palace photo and... Read R E D art and imaging and Lakewood do all that for me. So I had less control over my product, but more time out in the field, okay. not being in the dark room. But then, nineteen or two thousand seven, things digitally started getting good. We had the Canon EOS Rebel at you know eight megapixel or whatever it was, and then it became twelve megapixel, and then it became twenty, and now it's fifty megapixel. And frankly. I am completely satiated now with technology because technology can only do so much. The color, the contrast, the dynamic range, 13 stops of detail and highlights to shadow 
And then detail. People are enamored with detail, but the human eye can only appreciate so much detail. And the 50 megapixel Canon 5DSR that I use today is all I will ever need. I do not need. I have come to the edge of technology where it's doing everything that the human brain can consume, and I don't need any more. What if I told you that artificial intelligence will advance that? It's inevitable. They are going to have a technology that's better than the human eye for gauging. You know, I appreciate that. You know why? Because I'm not from here. Is that that Twilight Zone episode again? Go ahead. This goes back to 10 p.m. Friday night Twilight Zones. No, seriously, I'm not from here. Klebach, they sent me here 286 years ago. I've got 24 more years, and I'm glad to be leaving. So on Klebach, all of this is child's play technology. Where I come from, technology is far more advanced than your AI stuff that you're so enamored so with So there's a limit to your technology, but I bet you have a nice home setup. What would it look like? I bet you have all the greatest Well, I have stuff. a 24-inch monitor, so it's big enough for me to do the color corrections on my files before I send them off to the lab to make a print for somebody or a book to be mm-hmm. published. Uh, you know, I have eight terabytes of storage. I have backup drives that are eight terabytes so that I don't lose everything in a fire at my condo in Denver. I keep an extra hard drive there. So yeah, there's certain basic things you need to do to protect the integrity, you know, of all of 50 years worth of work, which I don't want to lose. But in general, it's like how I feel about photography equipment. The less lenses, the fewer bodies, the less equipment that I take into the wilderness with me, the more food, the more beer, the farther, faster I can travel to see beautiful places. So the less gear I got, the better off I am, and that's computers Tell too. us about this transfer to History Colorado. Do you just give them a thumb drive, or do you push a, a mouse button, and boom, 10,000 images go off to them? How does this contribution get made, and what can the consumer uh, expect when we visit uh, History Colorado at 12th and Broadway? Good question. So yeah, I gave them a, a hard drive with uh, 5,500 photos on it, which is the distillation of 200,000 photos. Those 5,500 photos represent pretty much every wilderness area, every federal public place, every state, like state park or wildlife area place, every local park and trail. I was one of the founders of Great Outdoors Colorado Trust Fund, the lottery that protects parks, trails, open space, wildlife areas, ranches with conservation easements, $2 billion in the last 30-something years to do that. And then in between all those public places, I've done the ranches photography, the private lands, like that book you have on your dining room table, Ranches of Colorado. Colorado. It's amazing. So there's 150 ranches in that portfolio to fill in in between the public lands. So effectively, the whole state is in these 5,500 photos. And yes, they've now been bequeathed and they are beginning the metadata process where they take all of my descriptives, my captions, which park it is, which federal agency it's under, and that gets put into metadata. And then they put it, will, sometime this spring, by summer for sure, on their website. And you, the general public, now... My photos are in the public domain, and if you've always driven Trail Ridge Road and you've stopped at the Gorge Lakes Overlooked and you've looked at remote Arrowhead Lake and Rocky Mountain National Park, 
you can now go to that website at History Colorado. There's a page, John Fielder page, but it doesn't have the photos yet. And you can ask to see Arrowhead Lake, and you'll see three John Fielder photos of Arrowhead Lake, which is far better than Google Earth, because now people just zoom in with Google Earth. But when you go down to the lake level, it's a cartoon looking up because there's no graphics, no detail looking up at the mountain. You're going to get to see the mountain and the highest lake in the park, highest lake above Arrowhead Lake and Inkwell Lake and Azure Lake, graphically shot with a 4x5 view camera at 5,000 pixels across. And you can download it and use it to illustrate a story you're going to write for the newspaper for just a small fee. I've given up my rights to these photos. And the fee will go to His Creek, Colorado? Well, yeah, it doesn't. They don't make any money. It's just a $20 fee or whatever they charge to, for you to download the photo. That's amazing. And the 5,500 photographs, did you personally select them all? So I kind of knew this was going to happen. I started all of these negotiations with another institution. It didn't work out. They needed more money than I thought I could afford to raise, which I raised philanthropically from a foundation called the Telluride Foundation to cover the cost of doing all the metadata and maintaining forever in perpetuity this archive. So believe it or not, one month ago when negotiations failed with this other repository or institution, I looked up who the new executive director was of History Colorado because I hadn't been with them since the Jackson Fielder Project. Dawn DePrince, DePrince, and I emailed her a blind email saying, would you like my photos? And two hours later, she calls me and says, absolutely. Uh, within a week, we had a contract. Um, and I don't, not a contract for money. I mean, I've given this away. I don't make a dime out of this. And, uh, and they now have done the media campaign that a lot of your listeners are, have seen this week. And the word is out that my photos are going to be in the public domain in just a few months. What a kick for you. I mean, you take these photos because you want people to see them and to love them and then to go visit the places and to think about the beauty of Colorado and how to preserve it. That seems like a life's dream coming true for you. Yes. I mean, my dad, going back to my dad, was a philanthropist and a civic guy. He ran the United Way. He was the... What was his name? John Fielder. How long did he live? 85 years. So he saw your success. Absolutely. That's beautiful. So, but he said... Did he have trepidations about you leaving the department store industry to pursue your passion? Absolutely. But he wasn't the kind of dad that said, don't do it. He was the kind of dad that believed in setting an example of integrity and all those other cool stuff that we don't talk about enough these days. And let that example be my guide, not tell me what I should or shouldn't do. So anyway, he set the example of civic contributions, right? Yes. And so always in my mind, I knew that that would be my destiny is to be civically minded. In my case, my audience is nature and everyone. It's not just the city of Denver. It's everybody who enjoys and appreciates the miracle of life on earth, biodiversity, four billion years of the evolution of life. So my my purpose in this was twofold, just to let people enjoy seeing beautiful places they're never going to get to see because they're so hard to get to. And secondly, the threat to humanity is real. And if we don't use my photos and other photos like them from other photographers as a baseline 
for where we are right now on this planet with all of our trees dying, with all of our glaciers melting, with capricious weather that's threatening the survival of human beings as a baseline to judge how different it will be in 10 and 20 years and extrapolate to 50 or 100 years and make the decisions that need to be made to slow this freaking thing down. It's for naught because my grandkids and yours are not going to have a planet on which to live. When did it dawn on you that we have a real uh, climate crisis? When I started uh, making friends with people like the great Smithsonian biologist Tom Lovejoy. You know, Tim Worth, our ex-senator, used to do these VIP trips down the Grand Canyon and um, the Canada. And I mean, we'd go all over the world. And he How would, did you meet Tim Worth? When I was in law school, he was the congressman from Boulder. How did you get to know so in 1991, his wife, Ren, W-R-E-N, calls me up and says, Hey, John, Tim wants to designate a million new acres of wilderness in Colorado, but we don't just want to show the members of Congress map boundaries. We want to show them photos. Would you be interested on your own volition at your own expense photographing a million acres? And I said, and not get paid? I got a family to raise. And she said, nope, no money. You're in this on your own. And so I said, okay. So for a year, I photographed these places. We publish a little book called Colorado, Our Wilderness Future. Tim gives 500 copies of that to all the representatives and senators in Congress. And a, two years later in 1993, he successfully passes the 1993 Colorado Wilderness Bill. Then Tim invites me to speak at the old DU Law School, which is now that restaurant school out in Northeast Denver. Right. Uh so Mont DU in Quebec. Yeah, and that was DU Law School. Right. So, and so I go, I show up to do a slideshow about the Johnson project. Johnson and Wales. Yes. It was in that building, and there's 500 people there, and I'd never done any public speaking, and I was nervous, blah, blah, blah. But the point was, I got through it, and that became the first time that I realized that my voice, as well as my photos, could make a difference. And so that begat a long relationship with... Uh, the Worth family. You are an environmentalist, correct? A conservationist, whatever that means. You're not a conservative, but you're a conservationist. Wait, don't even go there. Of course I'm conservative. Okay, Dave, What's the us, ultimate right. use of the word conserve? To conserve Protect the land. Protect 4.3 right. billion years of the evolution know, of life on you Earth. Know, let's, let's get a little political, because my next word is... Now that you are donating your life's work to History Colorado, maybe you're entering a new phase and maybe you want to get outspoken. I hope you do, because I generally talk about politics and politics intersects with all of this. You brought up Tim Worth. He was a prominent politician, and I bet you've known a lot of Colorado politicians. And I was going to ask you if you consider yourself now to be a climate activist, Politics is important? Are you kidding me? That's the only way. Think about the 60s, you know, right yes. about around when you were get, I'm not getting as old serious as you, about life. Going, yes. Clean Air Act, Clean yes. Water Act, Endangered LBJ. Species Act, the and EPA. Richard Nixon even did Exactly. It was done right. under a Republican administration. Right. All that stuff was signed into law. We haven't done a whole lot since then. NEPA, that's been a good mm -hmm. one, too. But that's the foundation for everything we do to protect biodiversity in America right now and on Earth is what we did back in the 60s by laws. And unless you have politics and unless you elect the right people and unless you vote for the right issues, like we can do initiatives here in Colorado. I was one of the founders of GOCO 
traveled the state to get the Great Outdoors Colorado Trust Fund initiative on the ballot, promoting it so that we could dedicate all of our lottery dollars, which is the way it should be should have been done in the first place because they screwed it. The legislature stole all that money. We got it back to where it should have gone in the first place. If you don't have politics, you don't do anything. You don't protect law. So yes, the, the answer is politics is critical. Yes, I'm a climate activist because I got six grandkids more on the way and they're goners. If you extrapolate, if you have one ounce of science in your head, if you've got it, my IQ is like 25, it's really low. But if you've got an IQ higher than mine of 25, it doesn't take a whole lot of intelligence and logic to realize that extrapolate from now to then, and we're goners. I I got it. And I'm sort of a late convert, and science is not my strong suit. But I do understand politics, and I think I understand your business. And people with significant money and assets buy your work, love your work. You have this relationship extraordinary with ranchers of Colorado who have welcomed you on their property as you chronicle their life and uh, do incredible works of art for them. But I imagine a lot of them are politically conservative and might even have been Rush Limbaugh fans who made fun of climate change activists like Tim Worth or Dick Lamb or other people. So I'm wondering if you're at a point where you say, you know what, I'm sorry if I piss off some people who might like my work, but it's too important right now. The politics is divisive. It's divisive on this issue too, but I'll be damned if I'm going to speak well about some conservative who's going to destroy the climate in Colorado. You can speak for yourself. Are you at that stage of life to call out people? We've always been at that stage, but the stage you're talking about is this, the reality that everybody has an opinion, that there's two sides to every opinion, and that what you talk about is analogous to this. So that the day that I die, the day that you die, we probably, if we have some time cogently to look back on our lives, I am going to say to myself, ask myself, was I a net gain or a net loss for the planet? And I've had people, you know, when I talk about environmental issues and driving cars and burning fossil fuels, they look you in the eye and they say one thing. You drive a car, don't you? Of course I drive a car. None of us are benign. All of us are impactful on the planet. But what's important is, are you a net gain or a net loss? When you add up all the things that you do right, like I've had a three kilowatt solar panel for 16 years at my home in Summit County. I've got R32 walls. Um, I got natural gas at my house. I, I heat my house with a four foot snowpack for $125 a month. So that's a net gain right there for the planet. But I've published all these books and calendars. I've chopped down a lot of trees to get that done. So when I look at myself and look back at my ethic on planet Earth as a resident of the planet, it's I add up all the positives and the negatives, and I hope I'll be able to say to myself that I was less impactful than I might be otherwise, and I was a net gain for the planet. And it's the same thing with the ranchers you bring up. Yeah, they don't have the same ethic I do. They don't have the same political opinions about social welfare, about the use of water in the West and irrigating all this hay and alfalfa, you know, at a time when we can't afford to do that because Glen Canyon is almost not productive and Lake Mead is not going to be productive real soon, too, for generating what it's supposed to generate electricity. And L.A. is not going to get the water they're supposed to be getting. So why in the world are we using 85 percent of our water on 
basically cheeseburgers and Leprino cheese for pizza. If we stopped eating pizza and stopped eating cheeseburgers, we'd have 85% more water on the West to, to give to all the humans. You know, ethically, we can't let people dry up in Las Vegas as much as we hate Las Vegas in some sense. So there's two sides to obviously every equation. That's math. And you deal with that. And you try to be the one thing that, that's different about me now than 20 years ago, I was rough around the edges 20 years ago, and maybe people think I'm rough around the edges right now from this interview, but trust me, I'm a heck of a lot more diplomatic and cognizant of both sides of the issue than I've ever been in my life, and that's what 72 years on earth does to you. So how would you rank the politicians who have been uh, part of your career? John Hickenlooper, you probably know him pretty well. He's a U.S. senator now. Is he a thumbs up or a thumbs down? I knew him when he was mayor. I knew him, you know, when he was governor, and I know him now. And actually, I'm on his bad side right now because I felt when he became senator that he wasn't doing enough related to water issues in the West, which is critical for, you know, a heck of a lot of people from here all the way to California. And uh, we had an unfortunate phone conversation where I took him to task. and um, Because he was too pro-growth? Well, he wasn't. Uh, well, growth is a sensitive issue. You can't manage growth. You know, I was one of the progenitors of Amendment 24 in the year 2000, the Responsible Growth Initiative, where we tried to do what Oregon did, where we were going to put growth limitations, give local governments more tools to manage growth. But Owens came in and took over, and, you know, we continued without growth management laws to build up, not out. We sprawl basically kind of stopped. It happened organically and naturally, so we didn't need the laws. It turned out as much. But um, it's more about these resources that we depend upon now and will depend upon in the future. Water, for, for one, it's critical that we make wise decisions about that. And yes, this was about water. It was about oil and gas. You know, he's an oil and right. gas guy. You didn't like it when he drank the fracking fluid? He was just too pro-oil and gas, and he did not understand, like I understand, the impact of burning fossil fuels and how quickly it's happening, how exponentially it's happening, how quickly it's changing the climate. And I criticized him on a phone call about that, and I said, you need to be more forward about fossil fuels and getting over to renewables. And he was part of promotion of renewables. Colorado has one of the most aggressive renewable you know, goalpost in the whole country for a state. We're going to be, what, 2035, you know, totally renewable, and that's a wonderful thing. But he wasn't always on board with that, and I took him to task on that. So I haven't talked to him for a little bit. But while. what about him getting Joe Manchin to go along with the greatest climate he, change bill in exactly. history? Hickenlooper has come a long way. In the last 12 months, the guy has turned the corner. And I'm a big fan. Whether he speaks to me anymore, I don't know. But I'm a big fan of Hickenlooper right now, just like I'm a big fan, for the most part, of Governor Polis. But there's still a couple of things he can do better. One is water. And the other issue that I'm working on is wildfires. I've read your piece in the Denver Post. Yes. A lot of people think that you need to thin out the forest to avoid the Marshall Fire. But you have a different idea about that. Am I right? Totally. That it's the wind you know, the heat for sure, the dryness for sure, but it was the wind that was the Marshall Fire, the Hayman Fire back in the day, the first big bad one, troublesome fire just north of where I live, the Kremlin Fire 
And then the Cameron Peak fire, the one, you know, 200,000 acre fire near Fort Collins, that was wind. And we know scientifically, if you're on the ground and you're doing research on what are called snag forests, which is beetle kill and burn trees, that those places are more fecund than a healthy, unburned, uninsect impacted forest because that's the way biodiversity works. When you have dead forests, new stuff grows up and that becomes more fecund and more fertile than an old growth forest. Old growth forests are thick and choked. And we thought, you know, when we uh, invented Smokey the Bear 100 years ago, we started cutting down all the forest in the name of ag, you know, forestry and all of that stuff. And, uh, and then all this secondary growth grew up and the forest got choked because we're suppressing fire. We thought that was bad. I thought that was bad. And then I started reading Chad Hansen's science and other scientists' science. And now I realize the thicker the forest, the less the wind can impact, the less intense the fire is with choked, thick, old-growth forests. Plus, more important than that, is carbon sinks. We're cutting down the Amazon. We're thinning trees in America, theoretically, to have less fire. And yet it's the carbon that absorbs the carbon dioxide from burning fossil fuels. We need living things. Living things are going to make the world better. Did the Marshall Fire surprise you? Absolutely. What do you think caused it? Well, I don't know about that. That's up to public service and you. To no, get to, I, don't have any, I don't have a, a case But on the that. cause is irrelevant. The point is that 90% of all forest fires are started by human beings, even Forest Service employees. Mm-hmm. Forest Service employee started the, you know, the Heyman, I, Heyman fire. You're going to get on Hickenlooper again, huh? Uh, no, I've already done that. All right. But, you know, 90% of fires happen. They're going to happen anyway, whether it's lightning or human beings. It's how do we manage fire? Do we let it burn? Do we suppress it? Do we do control burns to slow it all down? All I know is from the new science that's coming out, if you pay attention to science, that cutting down trees and thinning trees is antithetical to having biodiversity, to fighting global warming with with carbon sinks and having less intense fires. All those billions of dollars, in other words, ought to be spent on defense, hardening our homes, cutting down trees around the house. So all those houses that they're rebuilding in the Marshall area ought to be built in a way that if there is a fire again, if all of that incendiary grass burns, which it's going to burn again someday, that the house doesn't burn down. And in California, they're doing it and it works. Well, there you go. What about uh, our politics? You've criticized John Hickenlooper, a Democrat, Jared Polis. Uh, You have a few issues with him. But what about the Republicans, the so-called conservatives who question climate change science? Look, most of your photographs, I dare say, were taken in the district of Lauren Boebert. She's now in the majority in the House. What's your attitude toward these people and their approach toward conservation and climate change? Remember when we were talking about Mrs. Hickman? Yes. So Mrs. Hickman was my middle school science teacher, and she took seven kids in a station wagon, towing a pop-up camper every year for 20 years for five weeks for 6,000 miles visiting archaeological, biological, geological, paleontological sites around the American West, down to Mexico, next summer up to British Columbia, cracking open geodes, digging for fossils, digging for archaeological artifacts, 13-year-old and 14-year-old kids. Do you think that impacted those kids indelibly for the yes. rest of their lives? Yes. And that one Bobert dropped one, out of school on. about that age. Yeah, Go ahead. True. And one John Fielder 
was part of two of those trips. Yes. Science is ingrained in me, and science is logical. And accounting, my degree is logical. I can't think out of the logical box. These people that you, what do you call them, Republicans? Yes. They don't think logically. I, I can't, it doesn't compute. It's like the Twilight Zone. It's like another episode of Rod Serling at 10 p.m. on Friday night back in Connecticut when I was growing up at age seven, eight, and nine. And by the way, my mother and father wouldn't let me stay up until 10 o'clock. The only time I got to watch Twilight Zone was at a sleepover at a more liberal family's house. But it's a reality. We just lived through the Trump presidency. I'm sure you took note of that. And the guy wants to win again. What will that do to America? Does it affect your life at all? Donald Trump, do you want to go there? Well, only in the context of what what you invited me for in the first place, Craig, and that is I love the planet. I love being outdoors like most people do. I love smelling clean air. I love drinking freshly melted water from a snowbank at 12,000 feet in Rocky Mountain National Park. And I would love for my six grandkids, and there's more on the way to be able to enjoy those things too, because you've already said, and I've confirmed that being outdoors and soaking in all of these undefinable things is good for the soul, good for you physically. Uh, If anybody, whether they're Republican or Democrat or independent, promotes uh, policy or tries to pass laws that speed up the rate at which we're giving all this away so that my grandkids and theirs can't enjoy this stuff, then I'm not for it. And how far should you go in opposing it? Every well, fiber of your being or something Well, I'm less? not going to do what seems to be popular these days and go to a Walmart and no, don't you know do that. what. Yes. But I'm sure as heck going to use my voice, mm-hmm. use my photos, write letters just like I urge your listeners to do about issues to people that make decisions, whether it's administrative, like Scott Fitzwilliams, the guy who runs the White River National Forest, which gets more human beings in it than any other national forest in America, and tell him we should have a permit system for visiting um, Chicago Basin and the Wemenuchi Wilderness, which is overrun by humans and feces and toilet paper, or whether it's uh, contacting your local representative for your state legislature in the Senate or the House, or whether it's that way for our representatives in Washington, D.C., be active, express yourself, your views and opinions, whatever they are, because this is the democratic way of life. And I've kind of heard through the grapevine that the democratic way of life is threatened by certain people, too. Yes. Where did I hear that? And do we want to be an authoritarian thing? No. I mean, one of my passions is reading about World War II. Mm-hmm. And I just finished a book about, you know, Germany from 1931 to 1941 and the brown shirts and all this psychological shit that's going on in right. Germany then that becomes the precursor to, you know, what happened in yes. 1939. And it's unbelievable how similar it is to what's going on in America right now. So, yeah, we got to speak out. I appreciate that. I have a big regret that I did not go to the Buell Theater when you had that concert with the John Adams Band displaying your incredible photography to John Denver music. What's your connection to John Denver? And uh, did you know the man? Only this, that before he crashed his airplane, like two months before, I had talked to his manager in Aspen. And yeah, I had started doing back in the day live music combined with my slides rather than recorded music. 
And I had a conversation with John's manager, and we began discussing doing exactly that, showing photos on a slide screen behind John Denver playing music, and then he died. Um, And then 20 years later, John Adams, I met him, and we decided to do these tribute um, shows with John Adams doing John Denver, 24 songs, 1,000 photos, 2,000 people at Buell Theater. It was a wonderful experience. I don't know. I'm getting pretty lazy in my old age, and I've got politics to. Wouldn't that be the same? Don't you already have the show? It's yeah. It's in the can, basically. So right for you, okay. Okay, I I just the problem was I couldn't make any money. You book Buell Theater. I mean, it costs a fortune to do that, and you got to have at least. 2,000 people. So if you'll contribute, you. I'm looking for donations I'm right now to do another. I'm not worried about you. Everybody go to johnfielder.com. That's the one-stop shop. Am I right? Well, it's, it's even though I've given away my photos to the public domain, yeah, if you're looking for a book, a calendar, or you want to decorate your home office or institution, I'm your guy. Before the internet, how many different shops did you have, and what was that like? You're a shopkeeper, you may have given up MadeDNF, but you remained in retail. Tell us about that experience. Well, the best way to sell a print was, and in some places still is, have a gallery where people walk into it. Right. But when you walked into my gallery, like the last one I had was in the art district on Santa Fe, 833 Santa Fe Drive, which is now an event center where they do weddings. But you'd walk in, you'd see 100 photos on the walls, but not maybe the photo you wanted from a thousand on my website now like i said earlier you send me a phone photo of your blank wall and i put the image you want to have into a frame and with photoshop put it on the wall and the mock-up looks 98 percent of the finished product so it's hard for you to say no so yeah i continue to share my work and put them on walls that way and plus i can be in summit county where i live i don't have to you know, be in Denver as much. And you live above 9,000 feet, and you still like the cold, even after this cold spell Colorado's gone through? Guess what I was doing Monday? What? Skiing, the longest mogul run in the state, which is called Far East, which is under the old Alpine lift on the east side Mm. of Copper Mountain, the most radical, irregular, asymmetrical bump run in the state. Absolutely. Give me cold. Give me joy. And give you danger. I mean, how many times have you almost killed yourself doing your thing? I don't know if you've heard, but I've had to self-rescue myself over 100 times out of the wilderness. So the most recent was an avalanche I triggered, my first avalanche I triggered in uh, 2019 above Aspen. I had to outski it, which I did successfully. By how much? Fortunately, it was going pretty slow. So I pulled off to the right into the rocks and it went right by me, but it was only doing you know, 15, 20 miles an hour. So I was able to outski it. And then that summer, that was March, uh, summer of 2020, actually, uh, a bear came into my remote camp in the Eagle's Nest Wilderness in Summit County and scared the llamas. And the llamas pulled out their picket stakes and both of them ran away. I found one of them the next morning, a quarter mile away, wrapped up around a tree. And then it took us nine days to find Earl the lost llama after that. And he was almost dead when we found it, but he was alive. And I was out packing with him again three days later in the flat tops wilderness. So the point is this. I think Earl should get a lawyer. Anyway. 
I yeah, mean, you but, put them to work that fast. So, Frank Azar or you? No, not Frank. Of course, me. You know, Frank's ex-wife, Jeanette, came to a bunch of my workshops. She, I didn't know that. I learned about Frank and his Ferraris uh, through Jeanette, who was one of my students for go. a long time. But anyway, the point is, I've never been injured, never come close to death in thousands of miles on the trail in the middle of nowhere because I'm prepared. Because I realize the threat, which a lot of people these days don't realize, of Mother Nature. That if you're not prepared, if you think a cell phone's going to save you from death, dismemberment, and destruction, you're going to die. So you never thought eventually. you were going to die? Never thought I was going to die. Because I always had a backup plan for a backup plan for a plan to get out of trouble. And literally, vehicular, llama, backpack, and river rafts, flipping, all that kind of stuff. I've had to self-rescue a hundred times, and I've done it knock on wood, successfully a hundred times. What an awesome life you have led. I'm so grateful for your time. Part of the experience of going in the mountains and seeing the wonder is spiritual. I was wondering about your religiosity, whether it affects you that way, whether you've changed through the years. Do you associate it with religion or spirituality at all? Though my mother and father required me to go to um, Episcopal um, Sunday school and then Episcopal church kneeling for 45 minutes on a Sunday when a teenager's bones are developing. Um, whether I went to Duke University, a pretty serious Methodist institution with the great Duke chapel, um, Christianity, as much as I love it, respect it, appreciate it, and the examples of Christ and the ten commandments, which I try to follow. Um, I'm too much of a scientist to be a traditional Christian. The miracle, I call it, because that's kind of uh, a reference, obviously, to traditional right. religion of life on earth, the 4.3 billion years, the evolution mm -hmm. of life on earth, of how lucky we are as homo sapien to be on a planet, in a solar system, in a galaxy, in a universe, in what may be a multiverse where everything is infinite, we don't know that it's not, fascinates me from a logical science. Again, Mrs. Hickman, my middle school science teacher, influencing my life for the rest of my life, is fascinating. And I just have a hard time with the restriction, if there is such a thing, and I know some Christians will say there's no restriction of the tenets of traditional religion, not allowing me to think out of the box about quantum physics, 13 spatial dimensions with uh, M theory and all that stuff. It's fun. Like I read a lot about quantum physics because there are no limits to it. And we haven't found any boundaries yet. I hate boundaries. I hate walls. I hate fences. That's why I'm in the wilderness. That's why spiritually I think the way that I do. But if anybody thinks for one second that I don't love my fellow man, that I don't love Homo sapien despite what he and she are doing and they are doing to the planet right now, they're wrong, absolutely wrong. It's a miracle that we're alive and we are so lucky to be on planet Earth and exist. And at this time, I mean, we are really at an inflection point. I don't know if you've checked out artificial intelligence. I did prior to this interview and it's got some things to say about you. Have you played around with Chad GBT? I haven't. Like the only thing I've done is watch 2001 A Space Oddity an infinite number of times. See, I've never seen that. But and how? That's how. How right. is the 
artificial intelligence who took over the spaceship. I asked for the attributes of John Fielder work, artificial intelligence. You know what it said? <laughs> Attention to detail. One, use of light. Two, it goes on. It's beautifully written. Three, composition. Four, love of the outdoors. Five, environmental advocacy. No way. You made that up. No, I swear to God. I'll give you this printout. And That's then I said, regenerate the response to just put it a little different. This time, number one was attention to detail. Two, use of light. Three, composition. Four, technical proficiency. Five, passion for the nature world. Fielder has deep love and appreciation for the natural world, which is evident in his photographs. And then six, this one goes on, environmentalism. Fielder is an advocate for environmental conservation, and his photographs often depict the importance of preserving nat uh, natural landscapes. Then it goes seven, wide range of subjects. Fielder's photographs cover a wide range of subjects from mountain landscapes and wildflowers to wildlife in the night sky, eight large format. I could go on. Um, and I asked, who are, who are the most talented landscape photographers based in Colorado? Number one, John Fielder. Two, John Dyer, a guy named Dan Ballard, Kevin Raber, Jack Brewer. You probably know these guys, but this is fascinating. And uh, I'm just saying we're on the cusp of something different, where the accumulated wisdom of everybody is going into a computer and it's just kind of maybe making humans a little obsolete. Like we got them to this point. John Fielder got them to this point. Now, I just wonder what the future holds. Have you thought about this? Well, now we're getting really weird, but I would say two things. Number one, uh, if it takes control away from human beings, despite what we're doing in the pejorative right now, I would fear that. On the other hand, conversely, if AI helps us save ourselves from ourselves and protects life and biodiversity on Earth, then I'm all for it. See, that's brilliant. Because I think we can be optimistic, like, let's get a cure for cancer. Let's figure out a bunch of things with artificial intelligence. Then you can ask you questions like, what's the best landscape photo ever in Colorado? And it says, well, it's subjective to say what the best landscape photo ever taken in Colorado is opinions and taste can vary greatly. However, one iconic and well-known landscape photograph of Colorado is Autumn Aspens by John Fielder. This photograph was taken in the fall and captures the golden aspen trees in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. The photograph showcases the striking colors of the aspens set against a blue sky with clouds. This photograph has become one of the most recognizable and popular images of this state. I so, mean, it's So after all, I really didn't need to photograph maroon bells reflecting in Maroon Lake. They've got other things about you with maroon bells here, too. Because uh, everything about you through 2021 is kind of known. And it just seems to me in fields besides photography that once somebody has all this knowledge, I mean, you can be the smartest doctor in the world, but you can't have the accumulated knowledge of a machine like this. I just think we're on the cusp of something and a bright scientist like you, you are a scientist and uh, your love of Colorado is most evident. What, what, what is uh, the message of your gift to history, Colorado? It's so generous 
And if you could have people, if you could have AI spit out the John Fielder story, what would you want it to say? Just that uh, over these last 50 years of exploring and 40 years of trying to make a living out of photographing nature that, um, you know, I came to realize along the way that these really weren't my photos. These were everybody's places, therefore everybody's photos, and that it was my destiny to give them all back and give them back for hopefully a practical purpose to make the world a better place, a la my dad trying to make a world a better place by raising money for United Way. My format has been uh, trashing two knees, one hip, titanium joints, doing what it takes to raise a family and make a living at the same time I'm trying to explore Colorado. Um, you, are, was, you are very physically fit, okay? So you have a lot more years to go. I don't care how many times you wreck parts of your body. Well, for what it's worth while we're on the subject, yes. titanium's better than flesh. I recommend that all of your listeners get titanium joints, whether they need them or not. That's how good mine are. Here's the one thing that I don't think the average person can do that you have done. You've spent a lot of alone time. The other day, I got sick of the ice and the snow. I don't love it quite the way you do. And I took off through Colorado, and I drove through Utah, Nevada, Arizona, saw Sedona for the first time. And I'm just thinking about the Colorado River Basin, the stuff you think about all the time. And it's so beautiful. It's like God put a museum out here. All you have to do is stop and take it in. And when you're traveling alone, you can go to every rest stop and read the signs in the middle of Utah. And I was fascinated. And I like being alone for a little while, but you've been alone on the trail so many times. What has that alone time done for you? So as we bring this to a close, I will answer that question. So my typical day in the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere, by myself, is getting up at 445, photographing twilight before any sun hits the landscape directly, which is the reflection of starlight and twilight up in the sky on the landscape, which you can photograph. It takes about a six-second exposure to get detail out of the landscape. But you get these extraordinary, weird, you know, colors in the sky and beautiful landscape detail to boot. And then the sun rises above the horizon, wherever that is. You can't always see it behind you. But you know it's there because that peak reflecting in that lake starts out red, and then it turns orange, and then it goes yellow, and then it goes white. Because the less of an angle through which the sun penetrates the atmosphere, like at noon, you know, it only goes through that much atmosphere. At sunrise, it's cutting obliquely through our 100-mile-thick atmosphere. Um, the less colorful is the light. And then I'm done at 9 a.m. And I'm sitting on that ridge. I still haven't had breakfast. I got to go back to camp now and cook breakfast. But rarely do I go back after the last shot. What I do is I sit down on that ridge in the tundra at 12 or 13,000 feet. And I just think. And I don't think about anything in particular. I just let thoughts come into my head. And All I know is there is no other circumstance, no other culture, no other place where my mind goes to these kinds of thoughts about whatever. And I can't predict what they're going to be. All I know is 
that it's a another, as the Republicans would say, or Democrats would say about Republicans, a parallel reality, and they just come into your head. And it can't happen in any other environment than sitting on that ridge at 9 a.m. looking at nothing but what was there a million years before you. And all by yourself, with your thoughts. Exactly. And what that does psychologically or subliminally, I don't know, but I am who I am. And those thousands of mornings at 9 a.m. after photography is done, just staring out at thousands of acres of untouched land, it's made me what I am. What that is, I don't know. That's up to lawyers like you to figure out. Well, you're both a social individual and a solitary man. Fascinating interview. Really thrilled to get to know you, John Fielder. You've had so much success, and just like your role models, I think you have decades more to go. Thank you, Craig, for having me. My pleasure. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hey, Troubadour, Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for coming over after John Fielder. Shabbat Shalom, and thank you for having me. That guy is your kind of guy, because he gets out there, he's go-getter, he's maybe climbed more mountains than you. He does anything for a good photograph, and you know what the key is? Getting up early. Exactly. Do you have a song for something like that? I do, and I submitted it to you. Light of the Morning. When How you, perfect. When you mentioned that you were having Mr. Fielder, I thought, you know, it's it's something that it, the title kind of conveys a landscape to me. He said color and light is part of the key. You will have to listen to the rest of the interview. 
and uh, it's sensational. I'm glad we had a great finish to the week because it's kind of rough out there. Have you noticed World War Three getting a little accelerated? Well, are you talking about the uh, the decision of, of Germany? Is it Germany? Yeah, yes. Germany with the Panzer tanks and then yes. America following up yes. with our commitment? Yes. Yes, that I followed. Frightening. Well, do you think it's a bad idea? No. Okay. Just like I think World War II was a good idea for us to get involved. It's absolute evil. This guy Putin's got to be stopped. And absolute evil terror attack in Jerusalem, that's not good. That's a horrible thing, but I have a question, though. Yes. So in terms of uh, these tanks, what if Putin, this is hypothetical, Mm -hmm. if Putin said, you know, I consider this an act of war on Mm -hmm. the part of NATO, right? Germany and America sending panzer tanks and whatever our tank is, and if you do that, I'll consider that this is a direct intervention by NATO and do all appropriate response, make an appropriate response. What do you think? we would would be an appropriate response on our side i mean if they attack a nato country then it's game on no but would we back off the idea if no you said, they've they've already said they'll unleash craziness if we do this but germany went forward so did america okay they know it might lead to escalation okay now what's going to happen on the streets of america have you I've never seen anything like this build up to the Tyree Nichols body cam tapes, have you? It's crazy. Well, Shelby I mean, County, Tennessee, Memphis. They're just uh, a being young released, man got right? beat to death by the cops, and it's all on body cams. I watch body cams for a living, and sometimes it's really disturbing, domestic violence. And then you have the Paul Pelosi body cam. Damn, all those people, including Elon Musk and every right-wing broadcaster who made fun of Paul Pelosi or questioned the legitimacy of that horrific home invasion crime where the cops really could have acted maybe a little better to stop him from getting hit at the end. Hindsight's twenty twenty, but my God, when cops turn into criminals, there's apparently five members of this special Scorpion unit did in Memphis— now, they were all black, and they killed the black guy, this poor uh, 29-year-old Tyree Nichols. But everybody's prepping for these body cams that are going to be just difficult to watch. It, the Pelosi tape is hard to watch. What are we putting into our brains right now, Troubadour? Well, I mean, the video of the of this cop of the you know of the beating that they inflicted on him. I mean, that's going to be a brutal thing to see. Why they did it? I mean, even and and why they did it, knowing that that you know it's being filmed. It's it's a crazy thing. I mean, I haven't really read about what what brought them to to that level of violence. Um, you know, for them to do that and think they would get away with it is just. I mean. That that alone is hard to believe, but the whole act is obviously it's it's unconscionable that they would have beat him to death, which is what they did, right? Yes, and I think part of the problem is they want to inflict street justice. If you mouth off to us, if you run from us, if you make us exert effort, you will be physically punished because they may lose confidence in the courts. Nothing's going to happen if we just arrest you. You'll get a slap on the hand. I don't know what happened. Everybody's speculating, but it almost sounds like humans acting like animals, like a pack of wolves. 
I was relieved at least to see that the race component is is not a part of this act. Is that true, though? Would this have happened if it was a white kid? Well, uh, a white I, a white man age twenty nine would they have uh, beaten a, a white person to death? I mean, it's well, possible. It's an interesting question, yes. but at least the cops weren't white, is what I'm I saying. I know. Yes, I know. At least, I mean, it doesn't. It's not exonerating the police brutality component of it, but it does at least defray, you know, some of the some of the racial uh, implications. Okay, yeah. here's a question off the top of your head. How many acres are there in Colorado? <laughs> oh, I wouldn't begin to know. John Craig. Fielder says he's been on every <laughs> acre, but I said, well, you just got to my little acre, mm -hmm. maybe for the first time, but 66 million. Okay. How many uh, mountain ranges? Oh, how many mountain ranges? Well, I think it's just the Rockies. No, but how many within it? Like the Elk Mountains, oh. the, the Gore Mountains, the, the different component parts. Right, the the parts of the Rockies. Um, gee, you got me on that one, I too. I think it's approximately 28. I'm just oh, going okay. by John Fielder. Okay, Bush. different ranges. He, ranges, yeah. Yes, okay. ranges. Yes. Mm -hmm. You're in the right range. Anyway, Light of the Morning. How did that song come to you? It's not about photography, is it? It's not. It lends itself to it. That... I'm glad you asked that question. Usually I have no idea how a song, and I make things up as you ask. But no, this one I remember distinctly because this came from my father, who is a, he's a Western man. He's a man of science, not superstition. And he told me a story of his natural mother who died when my father was only one year old. This was back in, this was in Germany. 1925, she died. My father was born in 1924. She died of some, uh, like, yellow fever or scarlet fever, one of those fevers that came in and took people's lives quickly. And so he never knew her, but he, in his life, he's thought that in times of worry and trouble, he's felt her presence telling him that it's okay. He's told me that. And when my mom got sick at one point, in, you know, gravely ill, and she recovered, this was when she was in her 40s, he said he was out in the garden sweating bullets, you know, in misery and in fear of losing my mother. He felt the presence of his natural mother. And she said, it's going to be okay. She'll be fine. And that's wow. what he told me. And I thought, wow, this is interesting because this is not, my dad was a, you know, he was a corporate guy. He worked for Price Waterhouse. And, you know, he was, he was, like I said, not that he wasn't, didn't have spirituality or religion in his life, but he was, he was a Western man as, as I, you know, as, as I said. Um, it was interesting for me to hear that side of him. And it was that idea that gave me, well, it, actually, the, the story is about that. It's a, an angel talking to, to someone who is feeling trouble and comforting them. Oh, my gosh. And I brought up your father to John Fielder. Because do you know where he lives? Right uh, in the Gore Range. Right, I saw that from that YouTube you sent. Yes, me. Mm -hmm. near Camp Hale. Right near, uh, yeah. And near he was a big part of that monument dedication, and it also ensured uh, the ongoing conservation of the Ten Mile Range. Yeah. Do you know that Ten Mile Range? It needs to be protected against oil and gas and mining and stuff like that, and that's part of the designation. And he thought that was a big deal. Good. So, what are the odds of me talking to him about that? 
and your father escaping Germany as a boy in the 30s, then becoming of age, serving with the 10th Army Mountain Division, right. Camp Hale, yep. and going overseas to help us win World War II. Interesting. It's, yeah. uh, it all comes together. Yeah, it's great. Who sings back up on this song? Which of this your daughters? Is, oh, so this is Rachel, and it's actually more than backup because there's, I know it's there like is, a co-singing. Yeah. It, she's co-singing, and there's a there's a part of the song where she's actually, like I said, the song is is written um, in is is about an angel coming to somebody, and she takes the part of the angel um, in the middle of the song. And John Fielder said that when he reads, he likes to read about World War II. That's interesting. We're talking about possible World War III and World War II. And we're talking about our troubadour Dave Gunder's amazing song, Light of the Morning. Have a great week, troubadour. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, Craig. Thank you. Sent an angel She walks beside me She's here to guide me When I lose my way You may not believe it's true But I would not deceive you I hear her voice And every word she says Hear her when the wind blows, see her when the clouds glow bright. Here in the sunset, I tell you what she brings now, even as she sings now. She's beautiful, you bet. So when the darkness comes, don't give in, don't give in. There's a way to carry on. Sometimes when I'm walking My head's so busy talking My eyes wide open I don't see the sky When all of my worries Go round in a flurry And I get nowhere
pandemic and otherwise a lot of people have so much affection for their pets that must come up all the time what's going to happen to scruffy what can you tell us about that michael bailey what you can do is create a pet trust in colorado you put money into trust and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog and it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years, whichever is shorter. And then when the time frame for the trust is up, you can dictate who gets whatever leftover money or I have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals. How cool is that? You can go to Mike Bailey's office and he has offices all over and you could meet at your home whatever. I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer. So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com. And there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. Craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Thank you, Troubadour Dave Gunders. Light of the morning. What a beautiful story behind that. On this difficult week, I hope listening to an accomplished environmentalist, a scientist, a Coloradan like John Fielder was uplifting. It was for me to get to know this guy. And you can see he has more to give. Thank you for the gift to History Colorado. Thank you for listening to my show. Please tell a friend. Please subscribe. Five stars is wonderful. I like it on iTunes. How about you? Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.